Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I have to say we had a great morning yesterday. Um, the different boards and committees of the church as we gathered to talk about vision, talk about where the church is going, talk about some of the things that are, we're currently involved in, get introduced to the new app, new ways of communicating. It was just a really fun morning. And what a fine group of people we have that lead this church in the different committees. It's really a privilege to serve the Lord with them. Uh, before we get started in the Word, it would be a good idea to make sure your cell phones are turned off or turned to silence as a reminder that our services are live streamed, so this will keep uh, from having any interruptions during the service itself. Eli Black was a brilliant yet ruthless businessman who was known for two main things in his life. See, in the 1960s and 1970s, he masterminded the takeover of United Brands Conglomerate, which at that time controlled a large share of the fruit and meatpacking industry. He was known for that, as being a ruthless carnivore in the grocery business and taking over the industry. But he was known for a second thing. In 1975, he jumped to his death from the 44th floor of the Pan Am building in New York City. In the book, An American Company, an executive described a business lunch he had with Eli Black. When the waitress brought a plate of cheese and crackers as an appetizer, Mr. Black quickly reached out, grabbed the plate, put it in front of him, and put his arm around it to protect it from the other person. And he continued talking. The executive with which he was meeting hadn't eaten in several hours and hinted that he might like a taste. Mr. Black continued as if he had not heard anything. But after a while, he placed a cracker and cheese on the tip of his fingers and continued to talk. And then as he talked, just reached over and placed one cracker on the plate of the other executive and put his arm around to protect the rest. He was going to make clear who was in charge. But what's the lesson that we can learn from this? You know, we learn in life that uh, we are called to follow the leader. But if we're going to follow the leader, we should check to see who is first at the head of the line. Eli Black was a leader, but for all his power and influence, ended up in suicide. Jesus Christ, in all his humility, ended up as the Savior of the world and the King of all creation. As we continue in our study in the gospel according to Matthew this morning, we find Jesus at the beginning of his famous Sermon on the Mount. We've seen that he's already given the command, follow me, for which he expects a positive response from those he has called, these first men who have become his disciples. He's beginning to teach them what it is to walk in the Jesus way, in the way of truth. And as we saw last week, he went up on a mountain as the prophet of prophets. He sat down in the position of the teacher as the teacher of all teachers. He opened his mouth in a form of prophetic authority and began to teach. As he would teach those that had come to him what it was to walk in the way of God according to the new covenant. And as he teaches with authority, even the crowds are amazed, as we will see at the end of this sermon, as we get to it in several weeks at the end of verse se chapter 7. So with this Jesus who has begun to teach the Sermon on the Mount with great authority in the position of the teacher playing the role of the ultimate prophet, 
We want to continue in our study of the Beatitudes this morning. And so once again, I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 7 to 12. And the perfect and authoritative word of God says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, Father, as we have heard from you, and your word, and it's been read, would you now give understanding? Father, we know in moments like this, we are tempted to follow the thoughts of our own hearts and minds. Would you banish those distractions now that we might be able to focus on what you have for us here in this holy moment? And so as we sit before you under the authority of your word, would you guide us by your spirit for Jesus' glory and for our good? We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, just as a reminder, if we think about where we started last week, the Sermon on the Mount was given to the disciples to, cor- to give them the correct understanding of the law of God, of how people as a redeemed people are to live. And he's extract- instructing them in what kingdom life looks like. And we began with the Beatitudes from that Latin word, beautiful or blessed or hopeful or even happy if used properly. And we saw that blessed was, in fact, the best way of understanding this word. And he gave the first four. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual poverty and their complete need of God to save them. They have no pretense, just humble trust in a kind and generous Savior. We saw blessed are those who mourn, who grieve over their sin and over the effects that it has on themselves, on others, on, the, on their families, etc., And they shall be comforted then as they grieve over their sin. They'll be comforted with grace and peace and forgiveness. We saw blessed are the meek, those who have their strength under control and use it for good and godly purposes that benefit others. They shall inherit the earth and rule with Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who recognize that satisfaction is found in God alone. It's like a parched and thirsty land. It is the righteous who drink in the truth of God as their very life. We saw that these four Beatitudes deal principally with our relationship with God. Now the next four that we'll look at this morning will include our relationship with God, but will also move towards interaction and implication with others as we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we need to remind ourselves that Christians are saved individually. God calls people and brings them into his kingdom, puts them in his church individually. But that is never to be seen as an excuse for individualism or for individualistic thinking. When a person is born again by the Spirit of God, which is a divine act, he places each of them into his family, into his church, where they join a community of believers who are saved and set apart for service in their new spiritual family. Later on, we will see that Jesus will say that this family is the ultimate family because it is the eternal family. 
And so each one that is called then is to live out in practice what they are in position. And by doing that, they show their commitment to Christ and to his people by their commitment and engagement in a local expression of his people, which we call the local church. We no longer belong to ourselves when we are in Christ, but we belong to a larger, redeemed community that he is building. And I emphasize that because there's a tendency that we sometimes see in the history of the church and even in the situation in front of us for a person to be a lone ranger who thinks he can just go off on his own and he and Jesus have a good thing going and they're just going to keep it that way. But God didn't save us for that purpose. He saved us to be part of a family. In recent weeks, I've seen online surveys and on-the-street testimonies and, and questions of people, and they say something like, well, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. Jesus doesn't give us that option because he has redeemed his people to put them in the church, and that's how they live out the one another commands. That's how they live out their commitment and devotion to God in the context of a redeemed People. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples, what it is like to live as a redeemed people as we go through these Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, last week we looked at the first four Beatitudes. This week, let's deep dive into the, the next four, and we begin with the blessed in God, part two. You recall last week we had the blessed in God, part one, and looked at the first four Beatitudes. Here we look at the blessed in God, part two. And so we ended with those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. They thirst for the things of God. And as they do, they will see spiritual fruit produced in their lives. As they are poor in spirit, they will recognize their need for God's grace. And they will exhibit compassion towards those who are also struggling with sin. And when we are honest with ourselves and with our own spiritual weaknesses... We will then be ready to be compassionate and patient with those who are also spiritually weak. And that shows up in this first beatitude that we look at today, which is number five in the list. Kindness and well-being. Kindness and well-being. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The word for merciful here means intentional kindness. Intentional kindness. Those who are merciful are those who are not so quick to judge or to call into question or impugn or to accuse or to slander. That's what the world does. Because the world acts according to its own father, the father of lies, who accuses and steals and kills and destroys. But if we're in Christ, we have a new father, we have a new family, we have a new community. And we need to learn what it is to act more like our new father, our eternal father, and not according to our sinful nature. As we are practicing mercy, we recognize a very important truth, that mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. We deserve the wrath of God. But God poured out that judgment on Christ on behalf of those he came to save. During the time of the emperor Napoleon, a mother approached him asking for pardon for her son. And the emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain crime twice and justice demanded death. But your honor, I don't ask for justice, the mother said. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. 
Well then, said the emperor, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Another way of saying it is that mercy is always given to the undeserving. Because we know for, because of sin and our own wickedness and our own sinful hearts, we deserve the wrath of God. In fact, before we come to Christ, we are living under the wrath of God that abides on us. But don't ever underestimate the greatness of mercy. Every breath that we take is a gift from God. Every beat of our heart is a gift from Him. He shows mercy to us in a myriad of ways each day. And those then who have received God's mercy are then freed up and empowered to act accordingly. It becomes part of the regular impulse, the regular way of acting. It's a trend. It becomes more of a habit than just an occasional response. Jesus will have more to say about mercy later on in Matthew 18. He'll talk about the importance of forgiveness. And mercy certainly involves forgiveness, but it involves so much more. But in that parable, we'll see that he who is forgiven much loves much. He who has received great mercy is to be among the most merciful. For mercy comes from a heart full of appreciation for what God has done. And desires to extend that same response to others. Mercy is an act of generosity towards someone. Doesn't, in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't gloat over their wrongs or failures, but is quick to recognize and to forbear and to support and encourage. Generosity is love in action. An application of the golden rule that we should do unto others as we might have them do unto us. As one commentator put it, the merciful, ju the merciful judge charitably, and therefore they shall not be condemned. And the scriptures are full of examples of mercy, and I, I put some on the screen just for you to consider later. But I think we all agree that perhaps one of the greatest statements in the Old Testament on mercy comes from the prophet Micah, who has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice. And to love kindness, or the same word is merciful, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So as we apply this beatitude, then we should have the disposition that we should give as much mercy to others as we would love to receive from them. But if you're at all like me, I tend to give myself a lot of mercy and grace in my failures and my weaknesses. I give myself the benefit of the doubt. Oh, if only you understood my situation. But when it comes to somebody else, uh, I'm a little more apt to throw the law at them. Jesus tells us a much better way. He says that mercy attracts mercy. But that judgment will attract judgment. It was James, the brother of our Lord, who wrote in his letter, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus was the ultimate manifestation of mercy, and boy, are we not so glad that in Christ we have experienced great mercy. So let us be merciful then to others. Next we see purity and beauty. Purity and beauty. Blessed are the pure in heart. This refers to the inner and moral status of a person. At the very core of their being, they are pure. To be pure in heart is to be pure throughout. 
as one commentator says. As another says, it means to be free from double-mindedness and hypocrisy. The pure in heart are those who will work to avoid sin, both in heart and mind. And it is in Christ that God works in us so that the inner and outer purity of the Christian match. They line up. There's integrity in how they live because what they portend to be and what they actually are get closer and closer to resembling each other. Those who have been touched by the grace of God and are pure in heart have motivations and intentions that are holy, that are godly, that are righteous. They seek what is best for others and not just what they want. Their first desire is to please God. And they're pure in heart, and so their first desire is that God is pleased with what they do, and that's more important to them even to what the watching world may think. To be pure in heart is to live without compromise, without shading the truth to try to make us look good, because it recognizes that ultimately only God is good, and all that we do is to point others to the goodness of God. But we're a complicated creature, aren't we? As Dr. Dia Carson says, we humans... We're a strange lot. The demand for genuine perfection loses itself in the lesser goal of external piety. We desire something on the inside, but then we get more concerned in how it looks on the outside. And he goes on to say, the goal of pleasing God is traded for its pygmy cousin, the goal of pleasing men. And all of us feel that tension and that that stress inside as we recognize we ought to and we should be and indeed we're commanded to be what we know we not always are and what does that do then it turns us to repent and to confess our sins and to turn back to the lavish grace of god our hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness so we ask the question then blessed are the pure in heart but How can we be pure in heart? We know ourselves well enough to know that we haven't loved the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength for even five minutes in our life. There's always been a taint of sin. sin. There's always been a pound of flesh in everything that we've done. How can we be pure in heart? And that's where we throw ourselves on the mercy of God because that was the whole purpose for which Jesus came. He came to walk that path of righteousness and purity before us, to fulfill all obligations of righteousness, to be the perfect sacrifice, to walk, as it were, Psalm 24, along with all the scriptures. So that as we read in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It's the one who recognizes that there are no pure hearts except those that God has purified by faith because of Christ. And when he does, there is newness of life that comes. And that newness of life shows up not only in how we actually feel and think and desire about things, but what we actually do as a result. So it's a divine work. Because it's a divine work, we can pray. And we can pray believingly, along with David who said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The result then is we desire righteousness. We are hungry for holiness. We have a heart in which we don't want to have guile or deceit, no hidden motives. We want God's agenda. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
we know that it's only because of Christ. It's because he has operated on us in that heart surgery that has given us the new birth. He now empowers us to live out what he commands us to do. And what is the result? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does that mean as we walk these pathways for the time that the Lord has given us? I think it means that over time we get a sense of being able to see, as it were, with the eyes of faith, a greater sense of his presence, of the holiness, of the justice, of the mercy, of the the kindness of God. It's ultimately only those who have been touched by the grace of God that can begin to see the great things of God. Ultimately, of course, to see God is to be in his eternal presence forever. But even there, we won't see his pure essence. We'll see the glory that overshadows from him. We will see him to the extent that we can as created beings. But to see him will be in his presence. And though we can see him in some measure here, as our hearts become purer, as we confess our sin, as we grow in righteousness, as we obey the Lord, as we joyfully serve him, as we fall in love with his holiness, we could become the pure in heart more and more. Jesus was the one who was pure in heart, perfectly, always, and forevermore. He saw God's glory. He came from God's glory. And in him we can gain a glimpse of God's glory. And so this seeing of God is not fully for now, but we can in part. We can see something of his majesty and his holiness. And how we look forward to the day when that promise will be fulfilled as we read in the book of Revelation. No longer will there be anything accursed. This is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. But the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. My friends, this week, will you rest in what Christ has done for you? Because he was pure in heart and has brought you into his family and can then empower you to live in purity of heart, in actual holiness that increases as we trust in him. Thirdly, we see diplomacy and identity. Diplomacy and identity. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It is those who are meek, who have their strength under control, who seek righteousness and are satisfied in God, who are pure in heart, who are then able to become those peacemakers. Because in Christ, they're at peace with God. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what the text says and what it doesn't say. It said, notice, it says those that are blessed are called peacemakers, not peacekeepers. In the United Nations and in different organizations and even in negotiating tactics, there's a lot of talk about peacemaking or peacekeeping, but not as much about peacemaking. It's not just ending the hostilities between combatants. It's actually bringing them together. And we all, at this point, start to tremble inside because we recognize this is the hard work. This is the true work. This is intentional work. This is not the easy work. Our tendency 
is to move away when there's a conflict. Our tendency is to build up walls. Our tendency is to misunderstand. Our tendency is to attack. Everything in us and everything in this world works against peacemaking. But in Christ, it's possible. In Christ, it's commanded. In Christ, it's the way of life for those that belong to him. Peacemakers are those who tear down barriers because they seek to build up people. Peacemakers are those who take risks because they know that unless risks are taken, solutions will not be found. Peacemakers are those who advocate for those that are involved, not just for themselves. Peacemakers understand what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, that we're to turn away from evil and do good, to seek peace and pursue it. I'm the first one to stand before you and tell you that this is something that I'm still growing in. If I had arrived, I would have written a book and I would have gone off into an easy retirement. But the command is still there. Blessed are the peacemakers. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. But let's just for a minute imagine together. Let's just for a minute dream together. How much more peace would there be in our world, in our church, in our relationships, in our families, if we were active in making peace and bringing about restoration and reconciliation and restitution between those who are not at peace. While it is true that we cannot force others to live at peace with us, we can, in the words of Paul, so far as it depends on us, live peaceably with all. So in our desire to contend for the faith, to contend for peace, to contend for the truth, let's not be contentious. As we do it, let's let the grace of God work in and through us and speak to us and empower us so that we will actively move toward and not away and seek to be, be those who will make peace because peacemakers are sons of God. In the Bible, whenever you have this description, the son of, it, it takes on the characteristic of the person or the thing that they're called. So in the Bible, we have the sons of light. We have the sons of darkness. We have the sons of truth, the sons of error, a son of righteousness, even one who is called the son of perdition. Peacemakers are those who are called the sons of God, taking on his very character and nature because he is a God of peace. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he came, his title was the Prince of Peace. We're told in 1 Corinthians that he is our peace. He is our righteousness. He came to not only bring us back to a relationship with God that will save us and secure us forever, but works among us so that we become more and more the fragrance of Christ as a gathered and redeemed community. And so through the Apostle Paul to the, book, to the church in Ephesus, he writes, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Because he is our peace. He empowers us. He works in us. He loves us. He wants to move towards us building together. And stop the tendency of the world to pull things apart. Diplomacy and identity is the third one we're looking at today. And the, the last one is sufferings and rewards. Suffering and rewards. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who want to live for God, those who want to live in holiness, those who want to face an unholy world with the truth and the righteousness of God will always face challenges. And Jesus himself did not hide that fact from his people. He promised them that. In John 15, if you allow me to read, you can take notes and look at it later. But John, uh, Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. There's much that we can learn in persecution. There's much that we can learn in suffering. There are blessings even that can be found in it. It's often a question I ask people when they come and say, Pastor, please pray. And we'll talk about it and say, what do you think God wants you to learn in this situation? It was the English poet and clergyman John Donne who wrote a poem called No Man is an Island, who also wrote a series of devotions on suffering. And in one of those devotions, he said this, the sickness which keeps him in bed forces him to think about his spiritual condition. Suffering gets our attention. It forces us to look to God when otherwise we would just as well ignore him. The persecuted are blessed because they get a greater view of the kingdom of heaven and its rewards. But keep in mind, this is because they're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the things of God, the truth of the scriptures, the integrity of the gospel, the uniqueness of salvation in Christ, not because of some sinful foolishness that we may commit. This is suffering for being a Christian, not for having the wrong attitude towards the world, not for having a political position that goes against the current flow. It is whatever it is that is rooted in the truth and integrity of God's word. And then in all of this, as we do in everything else in life, the Christian can find comfort in the sovereignty of God, who makes no mistakes, who guides his people perfectly, whose desire for us to be holy is even greater than the desire we have ourselves. And as the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, he reminded them that both their faith in Christ and their suffering for Christ were gifts from God. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. If we understand then that we are suffering because of our faith in Christ, then under the sovereign hand of God, we can say, yes, it is indeed blessed to be persecuted because it brings us into intimate fellowship with the God who has saved us and sent us and who is empowering us to serve him here. And so we've come to the end of our first major point this morning, blessed, the blessed in God, part two, which prepares us then for the second point is blessed are you when. Blessed are you when. Now, both last week and, and this week, I have emphasized that there are eight Beatitudes. That's the traditional teaching of the church. That I think that's the understanding of the text. But I'm very pleased to say that several people came to me last week and said, but pastor, we see nine times it says blessed. Are there not nine Beatitudes? And to that I say, gold star for each of you. 
That's what we should be doing, digging into the text and studying the scriptures together and paying close attention to what is being said. But in answer to the question, however, I still hold that there are eight Beatitudes, and I will explain why as we move forward. First, you'll notice that when we get to verses 11 and 12, there is a shift in the focus. Moving from a more general sense, blessed are they, blessed are those, to verse 11, blessed are you. For at least the next several paragraphs, Jesus will focus on how the disciples are to apply these things to their personal lives and ministries. So what we have in verses 10 and 11 is an expansion on what he has already said in verse 10, blessed are the persecuted. And so I think we have in verses 11 and 12 a direct application, if you will, an expansion of what we see in verse 10. As I've said, looking at consulting the commentaries again because I wanted to respond to the question that you asked and looking at what has happened in the history of the church, I hold to the position that there are eight. Now, I want to bring an object lesson this morning. You'll learn a little bit about the background of my wife and the history of Protestants in France, in Belgium, during the time of the Reformation. We have what's called a Huguenot cross. We actually have one that we hang in our home at least we have in the past. And each of the things on this Huguenot cross was meant to be a teaching tool in, a, in an era where people were somewhat illiterate. And so you have it in the shape of the Maltese cross, four wings that form the cross, emphasizing as how they put it together, the four gospels. And if you notice at the end of each of the four gospels, you have two dots, and they said this symbolizes the eight beatitudes. And then they have the Holy Spirit symbolized by a dove emphasizing that it is the Holy Spirit who descends upon the church to give the church strength. And in between they have what's called the fleur de lis or fleur de lis, which has three points and each one three times for the 12 apostles. And so to a persecuted church, every symbol on this Huguenot cross was used to teach the gospel to those who were the children of the Reformation, who were descendants of those that had worked to bring the church back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't stand alone in the history of interpretation by saying that there are eight. However, this is not a hill to die on. So if somebody wants to believe that there's nine, that's okay. Blessed are the peacemakers. <laughs> now up to this point, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples as the crowd is listening in. And as he has been speaking in general terms, blessed are they, blessed are those, blessed are them, he turns and says, blessed are you, as if he wants to dig down with them in front of him, what will happen to them as disciples of Christ. So blessed are you when, because it will happen. It will happen. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now this persecution, if you have studied church history at all, can take on many forms, but it will certainly include words. They will revile you. To revile is to use contemptuous and abusive language towards someone else. Boy, do we hear that a lot today, do we not? If we hold to a biblical view of life, from the point of conception to the time of natural death, if we hold to a biblical view of marriage, of one man and one woman in covenant relationship for a lifetime, 
if we hold to a view of gender as male and female created in the image of God by the good design of God, what are we called with contemptuous and abusive language? Haters. Ignorant. With a long list of phobias that come after it. But here's the thing. Do those that get into that long list of supposedly what the Christians are like, do they have any understanding that they're actually doing exactly what Jesus said they would do? They will revile you. So, my friends, as we stand lovingly on biblical truth, firmly on biblical truth, contending for the faith without being contentious, don't be surprised if still you get called names. Because they will revile you. They will persecute you. To persecute could include things like to slander or criticize, discriminate, even punish those who don't have the views of the predominant culture. It could be words, it could be actions, it could be attitudes. Oftentimes, though, it moves from the harsh words of reviling to harsh actions of persecution. And there are Christians around the world today who are suffering because they would not bend the knee to the veils of the culture. The world of darkness can also utter all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. If you do statistics and studies about who does the most giving, even to secular charities like the United Way and the American Red Cross, who does the most number of volunteer hours, who gives the most blood, who does the most charity work, It shows that consistently Christians, especially evangelical Christians, are at the top of all those lists. And yet against all evidence, according to the popular media, according to popular culture, Christians are those who hate women, who hate children. Apparently we hate puppies. We hate everything in the slander and false charges against Christians. But you know what? We're in a a good place because history shows that those in darkness always utter slanderous and false accusations against the children of light. In the early church, believers were accused of being incestuous because they talked about brothers and sisters in love and their family. They were accused of being cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Savior. They were accused of being atheists because they didn't believe in the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods and goddesses. Not at all to put myself in that same category, but I experienced a measure of this when I was in college. When I would write opinion columns for the school newspaper defending the sanctity of life and calling into question the theory of evolution. And I was accused of hating women and of being a country bumpkin. That's just the way it's always been for Christians. They stand for truth, and they will be mocked. They will be slandered. They will be falsely accused. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, Jesus brings it back that the reason that we are persecuted is if we are representing Jesus and his teaching, and he equates being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and being persecuted because we are identified with Jesus. 
And that fits. Jesus is the fulfiller of all righteousness. He's already told us that in the Gospel of Matthew. We're told in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is our righteousness. We sang in our song, Oh, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Blessed are those who are persecuted falsely on account of Christ. Therefore, rejoice and reward. Rejoice and reward. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Both James and Peter suffered for the Lord, and they learned the truth of this beatitude. It was James who said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He goes on to say, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Perfect understanding of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5. The Apostle Peter would go on in 1 Peter 3 and say, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And I encourage you to write in your notes 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 16, a longer passage that talks about the fact that it is the norm for Christians to be persecuted. Beloved, he said, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see, from the very beginning, the church has understood to stand for righteousness, to stand for Christ, will bring opposition. And church history tells us that's the story of every generation down through the last two millennia. James and Peter affirmed what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 5, and the early church did as well. When the apostles were arrested and told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus and were warned in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, we are told after the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Is that our reaction? If somebody opposes us because we stand on a Christian principle, that we rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name? good for us to be students of history and read and learn from brothers and sisters who have walked before us and recorded their experiences of suffering for the cause of Christ. Because there is joy in persecution for the name of Jesus because there's a reward in heaven. And God will bless all the suffering that is done in his name. But keep in mind, friends, life is short. We live this long. And eternity is forever. It's far better suffer a little bit now because you belong to Jesus than to avoid it all. In my evangelism efforts among Muslims over the years, I would preach the gospel of faith and repentance, and I would often hear something like this. I know what you're saying is true, but I cannot follow it because of my family, for I will be persecuted. They get it. 
They see the cost in following Christ. They know to confess Christ will bring them great harm. So what would my response be? Well, that's okay. You know, God understands. Just go off and do what you want in your own. No, that's not what Jesus did. So my response would be with love. You're right. You're going to suffer. It's just a matter of when and for how long. All those who follow Jesus will suffer and be persecuted, but it's only just for this life. But those who reject Jesus, of whom Jesus says, I will reject them, I will not acknowledge them before my Father, they will suffer for eternity because of their sin before a holy God. So Jesus is getting his people ready, saying, blessed are you when. But if we have the privilege and are counted worthy to suffer for Christ, Jesus says you're in good company. Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Archaeologists that have been digging near what is called Palatine Hill in the city of Rome have found the remains of a school for boys in caves that date from early 200 A.D., and in one of the caves, which is called Alexamenus Graffito, or the Graffiti of Alexamenus, it is a picture carved into the plaster of a boy standing with his arms raised in worship before a figure on a cross that looks like a man with the head of a donkey. And scrawled into the handwriting of a young person are the words, Alexamenus worships his God. You hear the slander? Towards Alexamenos, towards the early Christians, they're a fool to worship a crucified Messiah. But there is another cave nearby, that cave in the same hill, where there's another inscription engraved into the walls. This one says, Alexamenos fidelis, Alexander is faithful. Apparently, there was slander towards this young man who was being mocked for his faith, who nonetheless was not ashamed to identify with Christ, but was faithful to his Lord. And there are many in the church today around the world who are suffering because they are doing what is right, suffering for the cause of Christ. You know, my friends, you want to please the Lord. You want to proclaim him. You want to serve his people. You want to preach the gospel. You want to get the Bible out. You want to support good things. You want to stand on the principles of the scriptures. And sometimes your reward for that will be trials and persecution and suffering. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. So the question is, do you love Jesus enough to be willing to suffer for him? To die for him? And if you do... You'll find that you're not alone. The church has always been a suffering church. And God's people have always suffered for righteousness. And Jesus said to the, to the apostles, they did it to the prophets who were before you. Thereby hinting at the fact that the apostles would have an equal authority to the prophets, which we know will become more and more clear as we work our way through the gospel. But what happened to the prophets? Noah was, was mocked and scorned. Moses was slandered and judged and falsely accused, even by his own people. Jeremiah was chained and dropped into a, a well and left to starve. Isaiah was mocked and even forced to travel the wilderness, stripped for three years. And later in our study, we'll begin to take a look at what happened to the apostles because of their faith in Christ. But there's a spoiler alert. Most of them were killed. 
If you suffer for being a Christian, for belonging to Jesus Christ, you are in good company. And suffering is not unusual in the history of the church. Almost every book of the New Testament tells us that there will be false teachers and false teachings that stand firm and stand on the truth. Almost every book of the New Testament says there will be suffering for believers, so we should be prepared if that day should come. And we can learn then from the examples, both from church history, but also within the scriptures, as we get a peek into the book of Revelation, it talks about those that are suffering for Christ. They conquer their enemies by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. If you're persecuted for Christ, and even if you suffer and die for Christ, great will be your reward in heaven. But it might be that some of us are like, hey, I'll suffer for Christ. Take me out right now. So the second question is, are you willing to live for Christ? And the little persecutions and harassments and troubles that you're going to face daily in the workplace with your neighbors, with the government, whatever it might be, because you're standing on principle. Are you willing to die the martyr's death of a thousand cuts of harassment daily because you stand with Christ? Are you willing to be embarrassed daily because of Christ? Jesus promises us that the reward of suffering and of martyrdom will be great. And in fact, at least 25 times in the New Testament, we are told that the rewards in heaven will be based on what we do on earth. He's clearly telling them, work, do these things. Blessed are you when these things happen, for there will be rewards. Yet even those rewards, we'll just hand back to the Lord as we stand before the throne. But here's the question. Don't we want something to give him? Because we live for righteousness' sake. And gave our lives in obedient, joyful service to him. As we continue on in, this, in the, the Sermon on the Mount next week, we'll begin to look at the nature of salt and light. And Jesus has so many more things for us. This is just such a challenging and beautiful study that we've been able to begin. But what are some things that we can contemplate over the next week as we get ready for the continuation of our study? The first is that Jesus was merciful and compassionate. He set the example he, he walked the trail before us. Therefore, in him, we could be merciful to others. Jesus never did anything wrong or impure. Therefore, in our union with Christ, we can have pure hearts and walk according to the ways of the Lord. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, who made peace between us and God and who is our peace. Therefore, in him, we can be empowered to be peacemakers. Jesus knew what it was to be persecuted because of righteousness. Therefore, guided by his wisdom, let us not be afraid of being persecuted because we are Christians seeking righteousness. And Jesus suffered, knowing the joy that was before him. Therefore, knowing that great will be our reward in heaven, let us face suffering with joyful expectation and hope. And when we get to the end of our short period of time and we have all of eternity to contemplate him and his glory and his greatness and his goodness, we will regret nothing that we ever did for him and nothing that ever happened to us because of him. So let's turn to him now.
Father, it is a good and hard word that we hear that ultimately it all comes back to you and we are so tempted to want to put our own efforts forward. So help us to continue to be grace-empowered, finding ourselves in the sufficiency of Christ and because of that position of strength to serve others well, willingly, unselfishly, daily for your glory. Father, would you continue to challenge us with your word because your desire is that we become more like Christ. And the only way we can do that is as by your spirit you help us to understand your word and apply it to our lives and live it out. So Father, we repent of our sins and we turn to you and commit ourselves to you anew and afresh and say have mercy on us. And as you do, would you empower us to have mercy on others. As you send us forth from this place to serve you this week. And as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we close out our time in worship, in hearing the word and being encouraged from the Beatitudes, we know that the only hope that we have, the only measure of grace that we have to be merciful, to be peacemakers, to endure persecution is through Christ. So let's stand and sing that as we say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. My hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to Him. Strange and divine, I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness. Joy, see, or in my 
up here when the service is over if someone would like to come and pray and leave a burden at the foot of the cross. Come, let's go to the Lord together. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let us go in peace. Have a wonderful Lord's Day. Mm -hmm.